You're listening to CivCast on the Kyle Dempster Studios Network. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash CivCast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of CivCast. My name is Kyle, and I'm joined here by my co-host, as always, Dan. Hello, Dan. My name is Dan. Good morning. Good morning, sir. And we are also joined here by our co-host, Valter. Hello, Valter. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome back, you two. It has been a long and crazy week. Uh, People on my end, they started school this week, so everyone's back to college. Dan, I know we talked about this last week. You're going to about to do the same thing with all your peeps soon, right? Right? Yeah, so within the next couple of weeks, we are uh, back at it. I've already started all my lesson planning and everything, so lots of history on my mind right now. It's uh, It should make for a half-decent uh, historical extra this month and a half-decent historical minute. Ooh, we're going to get the runoffs of Dan's historical, uh, his, his history teachings. That's all, we, all, we love those, Dan. We love, that's what we live the for. The residue, that. yeah. The residue. It's always good to have history on the mind, though, so that's a good thing. It is, it is. And Valter, how are things on your end, sir? It's going well. Uh, a bit busy, but good enough. Good. Well, this week we uh, we got some news. Okay, so we have to recap a CivCast challenge here. And I think, Dan, we're going to just do that in a second. But um, I just want to tease. We're going to also talk about an awesome trailer that dropped. I can't remember if it was actually this week or week prior. But we got news no, on Age of... Week. It was this week? Okay. Yes. Age of Empires 4 trailer uh got dropped a very very intro trailer which is cool and thought it was worthwhile bringing up to this crew because as we've talked about on the show before a lot of our audience is very cross uh pollinated and interested in that sort of thing but dan before we even do that i'll let you take it away we just finished the civcast challenge for the month of august what are our scores Cross-pollinated is always a good verb to use any chance you get to use it. I love it. Um, I had, per the subreddit, we had uh, seven folks who were kind enough and active enough to uh, post their Simcast challenge results in the thread, and I'll run them down as best I can here. Um, I'm going to try and dovetail a little bit of the commentary they gave into maybe a little bit of a discussion on each of their individual comments, if that makes sense to you guys. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, yeah go for it. Great. Okay, that's what we'll do then. So we'll start uh, with the person who's at the top of my list right now, which is um, Marino1914, who I believe is, I think this is the first time that Marino has posted a Civcast challenge. Have you guys seen his or her name before? <laughs> no, we no, had a lot of, yeah, a lot of new people t- took place in this challenge this week, I noticed, uh, which is great. That's exactly what we want. We want new faces. Right on. So uh, Marino decided to go with the Norwegians um, and mentioned that he or she was Norwegian, so it makes a lot of sense for them to uh, to play that way. And uh, it looks like they went for a domination victory. They're successful on turn 179, um, which is pretty early for a domination victory. So bravo and props there. Some of the interesting things um, that he or she mentioned, uh, it, and this happened a lot with people, I think, in this challenge, actually, which is kind of neat. Everyone seemed to mention that they got some sort of positive start position, um, Marino mentions that they had the lucky quote luckiest start ever with a tech boost in the goodie hut, which it's remarkable how something like that could set you on a path to 
just a really clean, strong game right in the very beginning like that. Any goody hat tech boosts, so they're really good goody hat boosts, can change your entire game, which is kind of funny. And maybe, maybe that'd be something worth talking about is whether we think that goody hats are OP in the early game. But, uh, but nonetheless, um, he found that he had the uh, biggest island in the game um, and uh, was kind of cruising around with all the other different sieves. I don't think I see or saw anything in the write-up that was um, you know, crazy, but uh, he mentioned at the end that it was a very fun game. It was his third or fourth game playing Norway, and he enjoys the sieve, which was actually a common thread. A lot of people, I think, took this challenge as an opportunity to play Norway, and I think a lot of them actually like Norway especially maybe those who hadn't played them before. Um, but props to Marino. Thank you for sharing on their first challenge. Uh, next person I have on here is uh, Rhyme, uh, R-A-Y-M-84120, with his uh, second Civcast challenge. And he actually mentioned this is his first time ever playing an Islands game, which is actually really neat. Um, Islands is a map style that I love. So to hear someone hadn't really played it before was it was interesting. I guess people kind of stay with this, the standard map types. But nonetheless, uh, Ryan played this as Japan. Um, and again, kind of like Marino, ha found that he was on the uh, biggest island. And funny enough for him, I didn't see this mentioned in Marino's, but he mentions that at least three or four of the other civs kept trying to land these little <laughs> colonial settler parties <laughs> on the coast of his island in an effort to... Uh, effort to establish some sort of forward settling base or something like that on his island a and beachhead uh, yeah a beachhead exactly yeah and he was he was uh he was having none of that for sure um and it looks like he had uh, most of his scraps took place with australia and spain i found the one thing too reading through all seven of these australia seemed to be the biggest pain in the butt for everyone no one played them um <laughs> in this challenge and everyone seemed to have a bit of trouble with them which probably speaks a little bit to um to their strength right now uh but in the end uh ryan was victorious with a domination victory on turn 377 by conquering london uh the next person on the list was temujin 1111 um who gave us a really cool write-up on their uh background with civ mentioning that they have uh over 1700 hours on civ 5 which is insane and i i <laughs> bow to you sir or ma'am voucher do you have more than 1700 i can't remember uh no 1700 is is a whole lot i can't even tip that yeah it's a lot of civilization but i've never seen temujin uh post in here before so maybe they wow. have just stumbled onto our podcast in which case welcome and thank you for posting uh but nonetheless they were successful with a domination victory for norway on turn 148 which is really early in a, uh, even a small map size island plates game. I think 148 is, is craziness. Um, playing Norway focused almost exclusively on building uh, quadrems or quadrems. I don't know how to pronounce, bleh, properly pronounce that. I call and them quadrems. Those... I don't know. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I make it up every dreams, time. actually, yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, and uh, they managed to siege a lot of coastal capitals. It looked like a lot of his opponents um, had coastal capitals, which I think if you're focusing almost solely on shipbuilding and, and quadrants and stuff, that makes a lot of sense. So he was able to um, siege on his way towards Caravels. Um, you know, he mentioned at the end, too, something that's really kind of interesting, the way that this challenge um, changed his normal gameplay he didn't um end up really dealing with city states at all and he didn't uh try to suzerain any of the city states which um 
I, I guess kind of makes sense. If you're beelining towards one specific direction, you really don't need the city-states, then you could probably just ignore them in that case. Uh, next person, number four, is someone who's posted before and their name I can't pronounce. So next time you share with us, give me like a phonetic pronunciation of your name. <laughs> I feel like it might be something Scottish, but I, I, I don't know. It's R. Kerislin, Kerislin, I don't know. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll keep trying until you correct me. I appreciate um, it, Dan. <laughs> they're victorious of the domination victory on turn 297 with Japan. Um, Japan's an interesting one. I personally, um, Japan was the first Civ. I no, no, Russia was. Japan was like the second Civ I tried, and I think because I was coming off of Russia, I um, I didn't appreciate them as much as maybe they deserved. Um, I don't remember if they've got any significant buffs over the few patches, but we did get a lot of people too who seem to want to play Japan. Nonetheless, um, our care Iceland mentions that. Uh, the Venetian Arsenal was a big part of their win. And I think in this kind of map, the Venetian Arsenal is the one wonder that beelining to makes a ton of sense. Um, next person on the list is the person who definitely wins for uh, best username of this entire monthly challenge. And I hope if they founded a religion, they just named it after their Reddit name. <laughs> Anxious Penguin. Ah. Anxious Penguin playing Norway. Uh, and this is uh, his or her first Zidcast challenge. Um, and actually, they posted a really cool uh, message here talking more in more detail about some of the um, unique aspects of their game. Uh, they played as Norway, and they seemed to have the most trouble with Brazil. Um, they had a joint war from Australia and Japan declared on them as a surprise war, and um, that he or she was able to fend them off pretty easily, and they used that as their opportunity to just tunnel straight into Australia and just wipe them out that way. So that's really cool. Um, and uh, he mentions that the one sieve that he went up against uh, that caused him problems was Brazil with the Minas Gerais, their uh, unique naval unit, which um, I think is a, is, a pretty, is a pretty strong unit from my recollection, even though I haven't seen one in quite some time. Um, but they say they really enjoyed the challenge, so glad that we could provide you with a, a new kind of game style. Two more. Um, the next one is Conqueror, K-O-N-G, Conqueror. Um, playing Brazil for the first time in their game, uh, which is really cool to hear. I think Brazil is one of those civs, and it was kind of the same in Civ Five. that on the surface doesn't seem particularly overwhelming, but it's just really nicely balanced. And when you play them, you're always going to have a fun game. Um, we were successful on turn 408 with the domination victory, which is cool. I mean, that's a little later in the game, but um, Conqueror mentions that they uh, had a specific approach to this game playing um to build from turn one to 300 with themselves as an economic and scientific powerhouse and just kind of um you know explore and figure out where everyone was and then slowly build up your sieve as this kind of sleeping giant i guess um and then on turn 300 he mentions that he quote began betraying everyone which is <laughs> You know, a bit of a bit of a Game of Thrones way to do it, but I liked it very much. Uh, and uh, from that point, it looked like he went to steamroll them with uh, aircraft carriers, naval ranged units, and air bombers, which I love hearing because that tells me that Conqueror got really late in the game. And a lot of these people winning with quadrims and, and caravels and stuff, we've seen that, we've been there, we've done that. Here in a game where someone went went heavy with aircraft carriers, naval range units, and air bombers is really dope. And um, I'm really glad to hear that some people went long and hard into uh, a deeper game. <laughs> and you know what I mean, though? Like, it, Absolutely. It's I know. Yeah. 
Uh, and those are Valter's favorite units that I'm hearing talk about. Oh, so yeah, he loves them. I know I he's... Uh, yeah, I'm not the big fan of the aircraft carriers, but I do like the Minas Garas. They are really <laughs> cool. Right on. And then the last person we have on there is the only person who went with a religious victory, remembering that, of course, oh. we allowed for either domination or religious victories. Domination is definitely a bit more straightforward and I think a bit cleaner of a path. But Vector Cat, who is a frequent contributor to the Reddit, and hopefully a frequent listener, um, was victorious with Spain, which I like to see with a religious victory on turn 169. Vector Cat was the only one to mention that their starting position was not great, saying that it was an okay uh, start, but they really quickly proceeded to conquer some city-states, founding the religion of Carsonism with a crab icon, um, and going straight into uh, work ethic and mosques as their uh, religious additions there, which um, I'd be curious. I don't remember what boosts work ethic gives do you guys remember off the top of your head work ethics gives plus one percent production for every follower of the religion in the city perfect yeah so that, that makes a lot of sense then i think if you're going to be going if you're going to be going quick and hard like that and you're building up um a religion early on in the game through a very simple kind of mechanic of followers like that makes sense so um and Interestingly enough, VectorCat does mention that um, in spite of playing a game as Spain and in spite of having the mission at their um, disposal, that they never actually built a mission, never built a conquistador, <laughs> and never merged an armada. Wow. But I know, which is, which is kind of weird, because I think of the mission as being intrinsic to a religious victory. But I guess if you're going really kind of quick, you can probably um, stay away from them. Maybe, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about that, if that's more of a situational thing or more of a style thing. Um, but the one last thing to, to mention from VectorCat that they mentioned is they noticed the, uh, the trade bonuses that they were appreciated, um, but that they didn't lean into any kind of um, specific, unique bonuses for Spain, that it was kind of a, a game that you could have done with any Civ, I guess, not just Spain in particular. So... <clears throat> That my, I need a drink of water after all that, but I think that uh, I wanted to say, last but not least, that uh, people were really great this month at participating in it, being complimentary, and at saying that you know this was a challenge that opened a lot of eyes to new sieves, new map types, new opportunities, and I'm really, uh, I know, I think the three of us are really appreciative of the feedback that you guys gave, and we hope that we can have the same amount of buy-in for our future challenges. Absolutely. So go ahead, gentlemen. I'm done. That's definitely a perfect way to say it, Dan. We thank you guys so much for taking part in the challenge. It's you guys that keep this thing running. We come up with the ideas. Well, primarily Dan and Valter come up with the ideas. Let me give credit where credit's due. Uh, and you guys just run with these. So it's very, very cool to see all your challenges and, and such great uh, posts written out and such like that. We love seeing the pictures that you guys present and, and what you were able to build with it. One of the ones I hope we can do going forward at some point, someone had the great idea to do that map seed one where we send everybody a, a generic map seed to work with. I think that'd be super, super cool to, to kind of see how everyone tackles the exact same situation. And uh, literally, one starting point, many different destinations of where people end up in there. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. That sounds like a great, uh, great idea. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. We'll, we'll have to do that. Um, okay, so guys, next thing up on our list is, is something not Before so, we do that, yeah, can, can we go please. back to what Dan posted about the mission? Because I, yes. I have something to say about that. Um, because especially on this kind of map type, space is a lot more limited. There's a lot less land mass available to you to work with uh, because there's so much ocean. And in that case, the mission 
it's an okay improvement. You know, you guys probably know by now that I'm not that much of a fan of most Unictile improvements by most civilizations. Yeah. And the mission did get a bonus, and Spain's mission now actually is pretty okay. But since like space is so limited on these maps, you, you don't really have the option to waste tiles pretty much because that will hurt you so much in the long run. I can completely understand that in this specific map type, the mission would actually not help you that much in a religious factory because you still need to have your city like up and running pretty well so that you can build the, the more important buildings like a mosque, for example. Mm -hmm. So I, I gather that the mission didn't get built in this, uh, in, in this case. I can't say I spent any time playing in Spain, so I don't know. I, I guess I, uh, I guess I just thought it was a little bit more key to their play style, but I'm guessing not always, huh? You can kind of weave your way around it. It sounds like it's only a couple of fate, and if you have a couple, then it, it, it starts to accumulate. But especially, like I said, that you have so little uh, land to work with, it, and you have to use a uh, builder's slot for it, pretty much like one of the charges. So then kind of becomes not that important. There, there are way more important things that you can focus upon. Absolutely. Well, that makes uh, total sense then, Valter. I, I, uh, I appreciate your insight on that stuff. That's an interesting conversation on its own and kind of something that will tie into what we're going to talk about a little bit later in this episode in terms of uh, reprioritizing things after the patch. Because, you know, uh, one of the things I, I mentioned to the guys before uh, we started the show on air was I said, I'm a little bit out of whack and what sort of uh, districts I put down when and where and why now, um, especially with those building buffs and debuffs and such. But first I want to do uh, this little Age of Empires thing. So if you, as you guys might have seen, we were mentioning, uh, we posted this on the uh, subreddit, which is actually where I'm pulling this from right now. But we got an Age of Empires 4 trailer uh, this past week, which is all massive news to the three of us because we're big fans. Does this talk? Can I play this? Oh, it'd help if I had mixer volume on. I think it's just background. You muted the video, I think. Yeah, I muted the video, muted my mixer, I muted it all. Oh, it does talk. Good. Whatever. But the point is, so looking at this trailer, it looks like we kind of go through different eras. Now, I can't tell if this is a recap of their other games, and that's what they're, the angle they're leaning towards. Like, hey, look, we tackled the ancient era. We tackled the, uh, you know, era of kingdoms and such, conquistadors and colonialism. Or if this new game is going to start spanning other eras. I mean, can we maybe... The game was always about, like, expanding through the Dark Ages and such, right? Like, you would advance through... So how far can we go in this you, one? You went from, like, uh, in Age of Empire 2, for example, you went from, like, the Dark Ages uh -huh. towards the Imperial Age. Right. Kind of. So what if uh, we got one that you could span larger? We especially have 3, I think, was um, more based on, like, the, the conquest of Paradise period. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah colonialism. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. My red coats. My red coats are my favorite units. There were a lot of those. I remember those. But <laughs> I don't know if this is the kind of game that, that will do the whole spanning all of history thing. I think that that is very much a niche that they've kind of surrendered to Civ. I think that um, as a huge Age of Empires fan, I would, I'd be okay with them making the, ne the natural transition next to like the, what would that be? I guess like the 1700s, 1800s, pre-industrial revolution, Napoleonic era, you know, seven years war kind of era. I, I think that actually that would be a great time and a great setting for an Age of Empires game. If you go back to Europe um, or back to, um, you know, whatever, the Middle East, that kind of area and do something like that, I think that would work. That'd be interesting. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, I, I would applaud like something like going from basic agricultural civilization towards the modern era. Then you get more like a game different than civilization because it's like real-time strategy instead of like turn-based strategy, but it mm-hmm. becomes a game like Rise of Nations, which I also love. But I, I don't think they're going to do that. I think it, it, it might be a wider scope than they've had in Age of Empires 2, but it, it's not going to go past, like, looking at the trailer, it's not going to go into the modern era, for example, because there was no sign of any, like, modern conflict. The latest that you saw, I think, were the Redcoats fighting, like, in the Independence War of America. Right. And and to that be that point, my personal opinion, I wouldn't want it to go to the modern era. And this is a, a THQ thing, I think, they're in doing this one. Yes. So that would potentially conflict with some of their other properties. Well, uh, it's, it, these days it's called Relic, I believe. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. Um, yeah, because that re- THQ Nordic is split off. And right. So Relic is Company of Heroes, which would be their more modern stuff. And so they look at property thing. I mean, sure, they could do it, but... I don't know if that's how they want to split that, baby. I don't I don't think I want it to go modern, but I will say, and this means nothing, this is just a marketing campaign, but I remember in a very old issue of like a Game Informer or something, when Age of Empires 3 was still coming out, that they did have like a preview of what Age of Empires 4 would be, and it was supposed to be some futuristic sort of thing and i wasn't too jazzed i remember that. that do you yeah. remember it? it was a split Shoot, i do wonder if i could find that i doubt i could but uh let's see age of empires it's probably gonna be about two years before the game comes out anyway so yeah. things will change massively look that was actually very easy to find holy crap i'm gonna center it on the screen here wow i cannot believe that that was findable like that okay thingy Relic actually has a developmental studio in my hometown here in uh, in Vancouver, and I think that they're one of the studios that are working on this. So maybe I might have to go and bring some <gasps> binoculars or something like that and perch outside the room. We need every to send day for you. the next two years. We need to like get in touch and be like, uh, no, we need to send Dan in there. So okay, I was I lied. So four in this in this little uh this little article, totally you know PR. BS image here just to get people interested. But uh, I guess four was supposed to be a modern era, so like World War II style, and five was going to be super spacey, which did not have me. I wasn't interested in either of those two. It's like cut it at the red coats and go back and focus again on the older stuff. That's why I play you. I mean, I'm, this was also by Assembly Studios, so that, that, that this is completely old news pretty much. Oh, this is so old. What? I wonder what the date on this thing was. It had to be, well, I guess it would have been around the time that Age of Empires 3 was hitting shelves, but. <laughs> That's been a while now. Oh, yeah, that's been ages. I did kind of yeah. like Age of Empires 3 approach bum, bum. of adding more stuff to it. Like, <laughs> it's been ages. We're so funny. <laughs> um, Resender, Resender on Twitch says the Homeworld series was done by Relic, but most of the devs that worked on that left. That's what happened to a lot of these studios is uh, what Ensemble Studios got shut down, right? So that's why there was no yes. more Age of Empires for a while because while, they did Age of Mythology as well. And then they got cut sad when a studio dies. I'm Almost really sad. curious if they're going to bring in like some some big names for this game because, of course, Age of Empires usually gets a lot of attraction. And and they know they can make if they make a correct game that they can make big bucks out of this. Yeah. So I kind of hope that they they bring some of the big guns out and like really really make the game that we all actually want and we've been dreaming of for years and years now. Amen. You know that is a great point because this is one of those we are in the era of remakes, right? Like Hollywood is all remakes. Uh, a lot of video games get reskinned and re you know grafted for modern tech. 
But it, it, it's funny. It seems like a lot of the time they either can't capture the magic of those things. Like a lot of, the, you know, like, for example, the Ghostbusters movie caught so much flack because people said it didn't capture the spirit of the original. And that goes on and on and on and on and on. But the same question comes about, like, uh, if you're going to remake this thing, you do have a very, very deep and old fan base that has been following this game for the most part since its inception. So will you come back and do this correctly or will it get, you know, second or third string developers working on it? Like you're saying, Valter, I really hope they pull out the big guns because if they do this correctly, they will have a rabid fan base for this game. Oh, definitely. Just look at how large uh, the people that are still playing the remastered edition on Steam <laughs> and everything like that. And they keep making like uh, little expansions and stuff for those too. Like yeah. the fact that they it's added... It's still popular. Uh, they added to Age of Mythology. They added to Age of Empires. They see... I, and maybe that was the good test for them, right? Maybe that was the test ground to say, hey, uh, we can put this stuff out and people are willing to spend $30 on a game from 1990-whatever. You know, another reason I'm really jacked on seeing this news, too, is that this is going to create the climate for Firaxis to come out and realize that they're going to need to do um, they're going to need to do more. They're going to need to do all they can to make sure that Civ 6, the, this current iteration and the expansions that are coming afterwards, stays at the forefront of strategy gamers' minds, right? Yeah. Because we only have so much time to play our strat games. And um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'll, whichever one of the two games I enjoy more will probably be where my time is devoted. Um, I, I know, as Raptor said, it's like two years off, so who knows what's going to happen in two years. Sure. You know, you know, we might not even be here. But um, the point is that this will encourage for access to maybe, I don't know, um, push forward some of their dev cycle stuff or some of their expansions or whatever. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there because, especially the fan base, because it is so old, these are people that are working now and everything like that. They have a lot less time to spend t uh, playing games than they did before. And they have the, the, usually, like the fan base of Civilization VI and, the, uh, and Age of Empire overlap massively because they are c different, but they, they, they hit the same kind of strategy niche that you yep. really want. And uh, families and everything like that are, are, are popping up for the for these people. So you really need to make the choice. What do you want to play? So Fraxis uh, better step up the game, bring up amazing expansions. And if it is indeed two years before Age of Empires 4 launches, then we have a couple of expansions. And hopefully Civ 6 will be way better than Civ 5 is at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're, they're going to absolutely fight for the same people. And you figure how long these games, both of them, have been running for. They're... Uh, that that's an interesting history to almost look into is because these games are both um uh well i think what civ civ might be older than i am i forget when the first one came out for that <laughs> it's it's an oldie but um let's let's see when did civ one come You're out such a young lad i know Civ one i released in my birth year yeah 1991. same okay so civ is i was old just born are. when it came out <laughs> So that they released said, it to honor the birth of you, Voucher. Oh, it, probably. And what? I just am thrown to the curb. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> they didn't. They did not release it in, for Kyle's birth. Uh, okay, and Age of Empires, the first one came out in '97. So uh, you know, kind of, it, they're they're both '90s games. Let's put it that way. Uh, so I, I would have been curious to know while we were just growing up like what was their competition like because they clearly were probably fighting for the same audience you know we're talking rts versus turn-based but uh same target yeah units. i mean 
but if we're talking about RTS in general too, that was, I would argue some of the golden era of RTS. Cause he had stuff like command and conquer red alert, which was hot at that time. Starcraft. Um, Warcraft. Starcraft yep. At Warcraft one, two and three, which were all RTS. Yeah. That was, that was a special era for RTS. So they definitely were in conflict with one another, but then again, we were all very young and we devoted all of our time to video games, right? We didn't have all this yeah. silly stuff like jobs and spouses and stuff. Those Ugh, things. Who worst. has those? <laughs> uh, but, you know, interesting side note is Blizzard is even getting in on that, too, because they just remade StarCraft, the original, and there's talk that they're in the works of uh, re-releasing a uh, regular Warcraft game. I forget which iteration. I never played any of the RTS versions. But, but maybe we're going to see this weird... I'm not by any means saying the RTS is dead currently, but um, maybe we're going to see, like, an extra revitalization of it all of a sudden. I don't, I don't know. It, it feels like... Um, you know, what is old is being made new again, literally reskins, but still, uh, it's all coming back to the market. Maybe that's the itch that people are starting to have. I, I don't, don't think RTS that. is dead at all, but no. I think that there is so much people wanting to play a really good RTS again, because th that has been something they grew up with. And, uh, recently most RTSs that came out, in my opinion, weren't that great yeah. so if if like a really really good rts launches i think they get so much fan base yeah and i think i think that reason age of empires is a good sticking rts that continues to come back is it has a low like barrier to entry meaning it's not overly complex to start the game but you can take it in like infinite directions like the amount of hours i remember sinking into that game was surreal and it always yeah. felt fresh and new so like you said i i didn't want anyone to think that i was saying uh rts is dead by any means but like you said voucher a lot of them are uh they, they, i haven't seen anything that's really wowed me i mean i go back to company heroes 2 all the time but even that i think is worse than the original but um I play it. I mean, that is also quite old by now. Yeah, you're right. That's a yeah. at least 2013, so maybe 2012? I don't remember. Yeah, I'm, still, like I'm still dying for a good space-based RTS. I know, yes. Valtteri, you probably have a few locked and loaded here that you can tell me about, but I, I still yeah. don't think I've ever played it. Maybe Sins of the Solar Empire is one I can think of that I played that I like. Really good one. Sins of the Solar Empire, huh? Is yeah, that, any of that, really is that multiplayer compo uh, compatible? Yes, it is, oh, and it is good. awesome. Okay, I want to maybe check that out, because I am in the market for some new RTS-style games, so that's perfect that this this conversation comes up, because I know our fan base. They recently remastered that kind of as well, so you're in the right time. Good. Well, let's swing this conversation back to, to civilization for anyone out there who, in our audience, who just hates RTSs and is so angry we're talking about them. I know you're out there. I'm just kidding, I don't. Uh, I don't think we have any of those people. But what we want to talk about this week is, well, I actually, you know what? I kind of wanted to, I, okay, we're going to talk about campus priorities and sort of things like that. But I want to first bring up something that um, also was brought up in those um, CivCast challenges. And this is in regards to capturing versus raising cities. Um, you guys can, Valtrum, I'm hoping you can set me straight on this one way or the other. But we're talking about those beachheads on your islands uh, that was happening to somebody. And I know that there is that mechanic, or at least there was supposed to be, and I, I don't know, the mechanic that uh, if you capture a city, it is going to have, it is going to burden you with a little bit more war weariness than one of your own native cities. And so my question is, pretty simply, is it worth capturing a city that has been settled if it's 
fairly new? Or is it worth just raising that thing and plopping down a new settler? And I thought that there could be a little bit of discussion, especially seeing as how developed that city gets. If it's more developed, do you keep it or do you still raise it and plop a new one, especially if you can afford easily to throw a new settler and do that? Do you have any thoughts on this, Valter? Of course I do. Um, <laughs> it really depends on the situation. Uh -huh. uh, depends on what kind of war you're... Are you trying to go for domination victory where you really want to wipe out that, that civilization? Yes. And how close <laughs> are you going to be at killing them off? Because having a city there is really useful for upgrades, for healing and everything. And if it's a really low-developed city and you're going to conquer a bigger one next turn or two turns later, then probably I would raise it. But in most other situations... Why not keep it? You have to remember that cities don't grow when you occupy them. So that it's not going to become better for you. But in the meantime, it still can do something at least. And if you're going to kick out that nation completely, then you might as well keep the land. I mean, it will probably be useful for your next front towards the next AI, depending on the situation. But if, if it is in a bad location and you see a definite better location, you get can get a settler there and it's a really new city, then yeah, raise it. Um, it, it, it. I tend to keep more cities than I raise, but the ones that annoy me, my placement or whatever, uh, for example, it's just a bit too far off the coast for my liking, then I, I will just raise it and plop a new city there. See, because that, that's an interesting thing. I never would have thought of that in Civ Five. I mean, I, I just take, 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 take. Uh, without you know any regard to what I'm actually grabbing, especially because you could kind of set those cities on some sort of like auto path and they could just do their own thing. But with this one, and uh, or I should say in that case, I would um, what annex them was the word and just let them you know be a part of me, but not actually have to manage them. And in this one, with your yeah. choice of either raise or keep, you know, keeping it, then you're maintaining it and such like that. It always brings that quick question to the back of my mind: Is this one worth it? And so when that question came up, I was like, huh, you know, if someone just popped down a beachhead on my, my, my island, I'm probably quickly going to try and evict the owner. Now, the question is, do I end up keeping their city or burning it to the ground? And, uh, and so that's where that came from, because um, like you're saying, you, if, they, if they put a beachhead on your city or yeah, on your island, they probably is maybe not even a spot you wanted to settle in the first place if they took it before you did. Um, so just interesting thoughts all around. H have you guys noticed that mechanic at all kicking in where you get extra war weariness? Is that worn on anyone's empire as of yet? Or is that thing kind of very, very passive at this point to the point you don't notice it? That's, for me, it's the whole amenity system. I don't really notice it at all. So war weariness is part of that system. So mm -hmm. I really don't notice it at all. Um, so no, that that's not one of my considerations like oh it's gonna make war wariness or something like that nah it's, it's just not a thing that that i think i need to be um trifled with fair enough dan are you a taker or a razor taker um the one thing actually i wanted to ask you guys along these lines is um do we miss puppeting yes them? like what we could do in civ 5 do we miss that because I, I remember i used to puppet a lot in civ 5 i i feel like that's missing from 6 i do the, the big thing is why puppeting in civ 5 was so much more important than uh in civ 6 is because you had to build a court uh, house there otherwise you would gain massive unhappiness penalties and since they removed something like that there is no real penalty like a big one if you conquer a city like that especially because they're not completely conquered, they're occupied, and only when the peace treaty is done, you will actually own the city. And then everything is A-OK -okay because you legitimately conquered it, or you 
just wiped out the civilization and you also conquered it. And I think that is maybe a little bit too easy. And it's why puppeting in Civ Five was so much more important because you needed to build a courthouse. And you had uh, the problem with like in the first few turns, the city would not be able to do anything because they would be in resistance. Mm -hmm. And then after that, courthouse building was probably going to take quite a long time. So you probably want to wait till you had some more gold resources so you can buy a courthouse and get done with it. And I think they should bring something like that, at least something like the resistance when a city is occupied. I mean, it makes sense. You, your whole city just got like invaded <laughs> by a bunch of troops. Right. You, you're not going to like, OK, now we are occupied by this new ruler. Back to work. <laughs> that, what? It, That's it, what I, I mean, do every day. I mean, it makes a little bit more sense that there will be some upheaval for at least a turn or something like that, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I I, I totally agree with that. It uh, it is a it's an interesting system like that. Um, I do miss it, Dan. To answer to to, to talk about that question, I miss it personally just because. I don't know. I get decision making fatigue in Civ Six for sure, where I didn't necessarily in Civ Five, and I'm I, I have to attribute. Now I'm obviously I always go on and on about how I'm a domination player, so I'm always doing that and always taking more cities. And I found that to be uh oh, we might have lost Dan. I wonder if we lost Dan. Hello, Dan. No, I think he's uh, he's gone. He's you had lost me for a sec. I'm oh, back though. He's back, That's everybody. Back. Some awkward radio. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. We were we were just having a fun conversation. Yeah, we were just talking bad about you, Dan. Um, you having a fun conversation <laughs> without me? Come on. It was all bad things. Don't worry. Uh, no, I was saying I, I I miss the puppeting because I feel like I get overloaded with um, decision making in in Civ Six that uh, isn't always the most fun decision making. Like there, I guess I you know this always kind of leads back to just video game logic. Don't don't misunderstand me and saying I'm having a terrible time. That's not what I mean. But I am trying to say that um, when I've ca captured like five six cities down the line in this thing, I'm like ah, do I really want to keep making petty decisions for this city? Something very simple that I've already done six times over in my own land. Do I really want to have to worry about you? And I wish in those cases I could just puppet you and let you do your own thing and forget about you be done with you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I get that. I mean, I'm used to playing very wide in Civ 6, so I don't really have that problem myself. And especially because I don't really mind like clicking uh, the buildings because I just check like, okay, it's this city. I know what I what kind of want to do with it. Just, uh, just build this and just build this. So I don't really have that big of a problem. And if that is a thing that you notice of yourself that you don't like that then raising a lot more cities makes actually a lot more sense because otherwise you just are going to get bored by the game pretty much and that's definitely something you want to avoid so by removing those extra cities that you conquer you will like increase your enjoyment i guess so i should just burn things to the ground more often is what i get out of this hey burning things to the ground is really fun yeah. so <laughs> I, I i agree with the principle though i do find that it bogs me down a little bit if i have too many concrete which is i'm gonna that, that, that i'm gonna level with you for a second some of that micromanaging and stuff especially in like a 10 or 12 civ game is why i sometimes steer away from domination in one of those larger size games because who the hell wants to deal with you know um whatever, eight conquered city-states that are all pissed off and there are production penalties and everything like that that come along with it. I, I personally didn't have a lot of fun doing that. Well, can I make also a quick counterpoint in saying, uh, or not counterpoint, but just a, I don't know, whatever this is, but the thing is, I fear 
okay, let's say that um, my civilization's here and Greece is to my north and I go and I start conquering their cities and I don't want to keep them all, so I start raising them all. But then their neighbor, I fear, is just going to be like, well, I'm going to spam settlers because I saw open land and then plop, 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 plop. Then there's six new cities there within the next, uh, you know. Plop, 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 That's how they go. Yeah, that's plop, definitely plop, what plop, happens. Plop. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that almost for a domination game, you kind of do want to keep that territory in a way. I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, that's a totally valid way to play it. But if you truly are like, I'm going to take out all these people just to kind of keep up with the way the game mechanic works, you kind of need to take that land. Otherwise you might be like uh, digging, you're trying to dig yourself out of a quicksand or something like that. I don't know because for domination victory, it's only that you need the capital. So who cares that they built six tiny new cities that are not going to do anything. Um, That's okay. But I need the map coded in my color, Valter. I just need it. I get that. But I mean, (laughs) that's not my kind of style. When I play, I do a bit more min maxi style than you do. And I see it actually as a positive because A, they're spending resources on building those settlers that they aren't building and increasing their empire like militaristically. They are also spending units on defending those cities, which you're not going to tango with at all. And therefore, it actually might make your job a little bit easier. That's a great point. Yeah, I didn't even think of it that way. And I often, yeah, you're right. I mean, I go for, I I have a a totally different play style at heart, I guess, because I mean, in Civ Five, that was always my goal, was to conquer, like, to see the whole map coded in whatever my color was. Um, so I, I, I did. I expanded rapidly and always had a wide empire, and I just took, 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 and puppeted, puppeted everything. And that's when I was happy, is when I had, like, 30 cities under my control. I'm like, this is a good game. But now I find, I think it is that decision-making fatigue or or just city management fatigue that is wearing on me. So we're, we're this is like such a such a good therapeutic show we have here. I learned so much about myself. Uh, okay, that's all I have to say on that. Anyone else have comments on this idea? Dan, did you have anything? No, I don't think so. I think I'm I'm definitely curious um, to see if there's going to be uh, maybe maybe this doesn't necessarily relate to the um, the keeping, raising, or puppeting or whatever of um, conquered cities, but I do think there's an element of diplomacy that you could add in there that's kind yeah. of missing. I think that you could. And we talked about this a couple months back with our diplomatic discussion. I think that you could add like an element to it where, you know, a conquered city um, has some sort of like, I don't know, um, separate diplomatic relationship with your central civilization or something fun like that. I don't know. But um, as it stands right now, uh, I generally keep them instead of race them unless I think that they're going to be a complete pain in the ass to, uh, to micromanage. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I am curious to see, I think, what you're getting out there with the, the idea of it being diplomacy. I, I wouldn't be, I guess, I, yeah, I wouldn't be totally shocked if we saw that sort of puppeting come back in, uh, in an expansion that deals with diplomacy. I think that those things are pretty tied together. And, and they even made, I guess, strides to do that in Civ Five because they did the whole, you can marry off if you were, what? Uh, Austria. Thank you. Thank you. So I don't know. I could I could see that. That's That's that same sandbox they like to play in there yeah it could definitely come back and uh, and that would actually be a fun thing i think i talked about in a previous uh, episode once that i want a habsburg family back in the game as well so uh, that would be perfect timing uh, we want their their hard crooked droopy jaws back in the game right exactly Ah. okay so next question i have for the uh for the crew here is 
priorities in regards to uh, some of these districts and such. I was telling the guys, and, and for anyone that kind of watched me stream a little bit of uh, the CivCast challenge for August, I was saying how um, I, I feel like I've over time moved away from the correct priority or an advantageous one at least for me i noticed that i was falling behind in science very much in that game i don't typically play at emperor usually i play on king or something just to keep it light uh so that yeah that was not something i'm used to but in that case i feel like ah, i really should have probably prioritized at least a campus or two in my mind i'm always waiting for like the ideal city like i'm always trying to find one that has really good uh district adjacency bonuses which i know is not always the mandatory way to do it right Valter? like you can how, how, how no, do you decide not. see that's so bad kyle civ 6 is different in that regard than civ 5 because in civ 5 you let the game pretty much decide what kind of victory type you go for uh civ 6 is pretty much the other way around you at the beginning of the game decide what kind of victory type you plan to go for and it depends a little bit on your starting location and such like that, but you pretty much are said like, I'm going to do this, this game. And that is where like the, the priority comes into. Uh, usually it's something like a commercial hop slash Harbor, depending if it's a coastal city or not, because straight routes are amazing. Yes. Uh, after that, probably an industrial center. And after that victory condition thing, which can be for science victory, the campus. If you're playing for cultural victory, it's going to be the the theater district. If you're playing a religious victory, it's going to be the holy site. And uh, if you're playing a domination victory, that, and you already have a harbor, for example, in, in like the island plates, then I would go for a campus because you need to keep your tech up to keep pumping out the best units and conquer you, you, uh, your enemies with more advanced units than they have because there's such a big difference in like uh, upgraded units or not. So the priority is mainly based upon what victory type you are trying to pursue. Fair enough. With the fact that commercial hops are amazing always, so it doesn't matter what victory type you want to do, it always works. I always want to collect all of the special people, the great merchants. That's a weird little mini game for me is don't don't let the AI have any of the great merchants. They are all mine. And uh, so I'm always spamming those uh, commercial hubs. But I did notice, you know, um, we talked about this before, but I paid special attention with the extra uh, production being used to build buildings. I noticed that kind of being a real... Uh, uh, something just to keep in mind. And I also made me a little bit more prone to buy the buildings when I could. Like, if I was like, wow, it's going to take me 11 turns to put a lighthouse in that city. Like, I have the free cash. I might as well just buy it so that I don't have to spend 11 turns of maybe more useful production on that one building. I don't know. That this and that's, is- a, that's a really good thing because... Having cash in the bank is nice, but it doesn't produce you anything. Right. Like, there is no such thing like you get interest rate on the stuff you have at the bank. Um, so buying a building with it the moment you have the money, that's an amazing thing. Because then it actually, your cash starts working for you. Now I want interest rates in this game, Valter. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, think it would stay actually, away from now. It, it wouldn't actually work. It, no, it would not work at all. That, but but you're right. I mean, you're. It, it's just it's investing in something useful at the time. I mean... You can kind of give yourself your own boost when you buy a a market, for example, and then you have extra gold coming in that way and and such like that. So, 
That exactly. does make sense. Um, but I just noticed that that did kind of shift it because before I would just queue up a bunch of those secondary buildings and let them let them be built when it was their time. But now I'm actually going out of the way to buy them quicker. So I, I, I don't know if that's exactly the direction they wanted it to go, but that's the way I'm taking it. And it's uh, it's good. I like it. I think an important point about like priorities is if you want to do a domination victory, don't put a camp uh, an encampment in every city. Just make it like two maybe designated cities yeah. that that produce units and the rest of them just focus on science still because you want to be checking up and having an encampment in every city is not going to help you that much. They're really good for defensive purposes, but if you're going for domination, you won't be fighting many defensive wars. You will be always away fighting at the enemy's front. Right. And an encampment won't help you that much with it because you're not going to be producing units in every city because if you do, then you will run bankrupt before you can actually conquer them. So don't focus too much on encampments if you want to do domination victory, which might sound a little bit weird, but just focus on science because science is king. Guess who was in that game though, Voucher? My my BFF Carthage was there. So I did have a little bit of a... uh, I didn't get to Carthage go crazy. does make it a little bit more different indeed, but I would still prioritize the campus yeah. before the encampment in those kinds of situations. The encampment would then probably be number four or something like that, yeah. depending if I did build an industrial zone or not. And then that also makes sense to make sure that your encampment, if you're just going to limit it to about two, make sure that they're in cities that already have a higher production rate if you can. That way, you know, you're, you're doubling down on, on one thing. So you produce the units faster. Yeah, specifically, and... you, you make like a high production city yep. that can push out the units that you need. Uh, and there's where your encampment's going to be. Probably one of the earlier cities that you settled because they are usually a bit more developed and everything like that. And you want to start building those units early on. So that's kind of... How you do it? I, like I, it. I do it at least. Yeah, city specialization like that. Yeah. yeah, you really, really have city specialization in Civ Six, and that is something I really like. Same, actually. Uh, we are a little bit uh, low on time here, guys. Do you want to go ahead and flip into your minutes? Does anyone have anything extra to add to this uh, little conversation? We can always pick this up later if people yeah. are interested in prioritization. Well, there was one. Of the, there was one thing. I, maybe maybe we can uh, dovetail this into next week and make this a central discussion about next week. Um, when Valter was bringing up the Theater Square District, we haven't really had an extensive conversation on culture in this game and cultural victory so maybe it'd be interesting to do like a deep dive into the whole mechanism of culture as a victory type next week because it is it is pretty um it is pretty detailed and it's pretty comprehensive in this game so it might, might be a fun discussion to have next week i like that idea yeah, why don't you guys uh dan why don't you kick off that uh this is your historical uh minute here for this week and i'm gonna make sure to add that to our show notes for next week so we don't forget that one because that is a great idea take it away dan Thank you. Uh, so actually, this week is going to be a little bit of civilization-focused history because I was reminded when I went back to my uh, parents' house recently about an old civilization game that I owned back when I was 12 or 13 or something like that that actually do- isn't included traditionally in the civilization canon. And that game is called Civilization Call to Power. And you might not have heard about that game. It was released in 1999 by Activision. And there's probably a good reason you haven't heard about it. It has to do with the naming rights for civilization and a controversy that existed um, between Activision, Microprose, and an old board game developer um, who created the first civilization game as a board game in 1980. So basically, 
what ended up happening, um, and I'll, I'll read you down. It, it, this is nothing special. This is just kind of from the Wikipedia article. I've cribbed this a little bit. Um, but in 1980, a board game called Civilization was developed. Um, and then when the Civilization video game series was kind of growing into itself and becoming a prominent series, it was noticed by the board game developer that there were a lot of common elements, a lot of similarities between his board game that he had developed, a guy named Francis Treshman, board game that he had developed in 1980 and um, the Civilization video game series. Um, and he said that he felt there was a heavy influence from his board game on the Civilization uh, video game series. And uh, what actually ended up happening is Microprose, the company who um, owned Civilization at that time, um, opted to work out a deal with Avalon Hill, which was the board game company um, that published the Civilization board game in uh, North America, to allow them to use the Civilization name. Um, now, in April of 1997, Activision, one of the biggest video game companies in the world, acquired the rights to the name Civilization from Avalon Hill. And what they ended up doing, Activision and Avalon Hill ended up suing Microprose over trademark infringement for the rights to use the Civilization name. Um, it was it was a whole back and forth, and it was there was a lot of controversy about the naming rights to Civilization and everything like that. Um, what had, ended up happening is in July of 1998, Avalon Hill and Activision settled their case with Microprose. Under the terms of the settlement, Microprose was able to keep all the rights to the Civilization brand. Avalon Hill had to pay them a huge amount of money, and Activision acquired a one-time license from uh, Microprose to publish a game under the Civilization moniker. And that game was called Civilization Call to Power. Activision had already been in extensive development of this Civilization game. And so they basically went to Microprose and said, um, can you please let us finish this game that we've been pouring all this development <laughs> money into for a couple of years and not just sewer it, we'll pay you a little bit of money. And Microprose said, yeah. And what ended up being released in 1999 was Civilization Call to Power, which I remember as a kid playing and which was in my old video game collection. I don't remember much about the game. So I was doing a little bit of research about it. And it is very much a civilization game with a few exceptions. And there are exceptions, two exceptions specifically that I think you guys will like. And I'll admit that I don't really remember much about playing the game, but reading up on these things was interesting to me. One of those exceptions is that civilization call to power went into the year 3000. It, it, it churned on through um, the ancient, there's five ages, the ancient age, the Renaissance, the modern age, and then what they called the genetic age and the diamond age. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, genetic age and diamond age, I, I feel like diamond age is a bit of a backtrack, but nonetheless, it dealt with a lot of space colonization and sea colonization. Yeah, you heard me right, sea colonization, as well as technological advances. But the one thing that I remember, yeah, um, I heard this really vaguely in Civilization Call to Power, um, that I think they should consider bringing back, is the mechanism, the active game-impacting mechanism of pollution. So when the Industrial Revolution hit in that game, and I, I really vaguely remember this from when I played the game, but reading up about it reminded me a lot. Basically, cities in the game post-Industrial Revolution that produced a lot of pollution would start to get these dead tiles within their city. And basically, these dead tiles would be unworkable. Um, they'd have no resources. And eventually, what would happen is if this pollution, these dead tiles accumulated, it would start to negatively impact your civilization on the whole. And if pollution on mass over the entire map was left unchecked, 
you would get these global kind of climate disasters like ozone deterioration, um, global warming, and maybe some other stuff that I can't remember. Like you'd have the ice caps melting. The game would inform the player that the ice caps had melted or something. Uh-oh. I know. And then the destruction of the ozone layer would lead to a bunch of land tiles becoming dead tiles and stuff. So basically this pollution mechanism, which is, you know, this is way ahead of its time. This is in 1999 before, you know, however many years before Al Gore created climate change or whatever with an inconvenient truth. Um, <laughs> of course, being facetious for those of you who aren't watching this, can't see me smile. Um, but this mechanism of pollution, which I completely forgot, and I'd completely forgotten about Call the Power to begin with altogether. But this really reminded me a lot of um, this really neat kind of intricate idea that would be something I think would be would be interesting, I think, to include in um, Civ 6. I mean, you have it a little bit with nuclear fallout after the dropping of a bomb, but but like more than that, like if your city overproduces um, or overmodernizes or something like that, having this kickback mechanism of pollution that can affect things on a global scale, I think would be really cool. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, Civilization Call to Power and the um, expansion that came after it, which was called Call to Power 2, because they, 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 they weren't even allowed, Activision wasn't even allowed to use Civilization in the name for the expansion. They're dead games, and you're not going to find them anywhere. Um, but you can find them on YouTube. If you want to find some old series, I was YouTubing it the other day, and I saw some vintage gamers playing uh, some old playthroughs of, of the game, and it looked fun. It brought back a lot of memories. But yeah, um, it's a little historical minute that harkens back to some of the old controversies in the Civilization series. I always like looking into the history of the series, and I thought that you guys would find that and the whole pollution idea interesting. That's awesome, Dan. I'm so glad you uh, yeah. talked about that because I mean, those are little gems. I think I'd heard about that call to power thing in some articles, but I never, I never got that deep into it. So thank you for shining some extra uh, knowledge on it because I. I mean, I, I I wasn't a Civ player until at least four, and uh, it's just fu- it's really fun to see how they progress through the ages and and what sort of stuff came out of it. Uh, I think to to your point, Resender here in uh, Twitch chat meant she could build underwater cities and cities in orbit. That's so. That's cool. right. Yeah, yeah. It's all coming back to me now. You could <laughs> absolutely. And I remember um, there was there were wonders, and there was this wonder that you could build in the Diamond Age at the end of the game that just got rid of all pollution. And I don't remember what it's called. The Diamond Age makes me think of like the Hall of Justice or whatever that thing was in the super with Superman and and the freaking diamond pillars or whatever that crap is. I'm just I just have an <laughs> awful awful imagination of what the Diamond Era is. Oh, dear. Yeah, that's a bad name. Yeah. I think. Thank you but, very much. But fun much. fact actually yes. is that in Civilization 3, you also had uh, global warming actually being a thing. Eventually, uh, in the industrial age and stuff like that, tiles would switch from like plains to like desert and stuff like that because of global warming. So they had something like that in the, the, the Civilization series as well. And I don't think it was in Civ 4. I think I'm pretty sure it was Civ 3. I want to say you're Bring right. Bring it back. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. It would be, It'd be appropriate, right? It'd be it, cool. It would. It'd yeah. be such an interesting mechanic because I, I remember reading about what you're saying, Valter, like that there were different. Uh, you had to be careful of what you did uh, ecologically and such that you know you didn't totally screw yourself. Someone I think was saying that they were stuck. This might have been a Reddit post, but they said they're stuck in a um, terrible permanent nuclear war towards the end of the game because they would just drop nukes and the environment would just tank and and just everything was 
blown to hell basically because of that. You know, the world was like totally unusable. So which would uh, make sense because we drop nukes like willy nilly here in this game, and yeah, the fallout exists do. a little bit, but it doesn't. We do, we do. But like nothing really happens on like a global scale. There's no ecological disaster or anything like that. Your cities don't flood because you know the ice caps are melting. It'd be a cool mechanism to bring into the game. I'd love yeah, it. Absolutely. Love it. Valter, what do you have for us this week? Today we will be talking about Brazil in Ooh. our list of leaders. And Brazil is actually a really great civilization. I love playing as them. They have a starting bias for jungle tiles, and that pairs really well with their Amazon ability, where reinforced tiles provide plus one adjacency bonus for campuses, commercial hubs, holy sites, and theater squares. Uh, that makes it really powerful, and it makes Brazil really like multifunctional. You can go many directions with it. Um, I prefer them as a scientific uh, civilization. But if you want to go with a religious victory, they're really, really well suited for that as well. Uh, because you can also pick up a pantheon that gives you another bonus from for, uh, from rainforest styles adjacency. So that becomes plus two adjacency bonus for each rainforest style. That, that spirals out of control really, really quickly. <laughs> And beyond that, they are also amazing because after recruiting or patronizing a great person, and the patronizing part is really important, I find, 20% um, of its great person points cost is refunded. So if you pay 200 uh, great person points for the great person, you will start with 40 great person points towards the next one. This means that you, in, in the end, will get a lot more great persons than the rest, except for maybe the Congo if they, they try really hard. But... Uh, you can get so many of the. Uh, you can get all the great uh, 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 merchants, Kyle, if you want to. I need those. You... <laughs> uh, and the extra uh, money that you get from the commercial hubs is really useful, no matter what you're playing, because you'll be building commercial hubs anyway and everything like that. So those are the main core strengths of Brazil, and that makes them really, really powerful. The Minas Geras, the special unit, which is a replacement for the battleship, isn't that amazing? Except when you're playing an island map or something like that, that like we did in the Sefkas Challenge, because that thing is a beast. It is really, really powerful, and it's unlocked by nationalism, which is a different tech than a battleship normally uh, comes at. So you can rush towards that by doing cultural stuff and just bombard all the coastal seas away and kill them all. The street carnival is a replacement for the entertainment complex district, which kind of sucks because I didn't think the entertainment complex is really worth building unless you want to build a coliseum i generally if i build it it's only one because i want to build a coliseum and the street carnival is not good enough to actually make me want to build them anyway um, they give extra amenities and also give the carnival project which gives plus one amenity and when while it's on the way you get extra great person points but i just don't find it useful enough to put all that production towards it i'd rather just build another city that has the specific great person points that I'm looking for, or just do the city project for that for that uh, uh, for that district as well to get the great person points out of it. It's just I don't like the street carnival, unfortunately, but that's mainly because I don't like the entertainment complexes. Yeah, that's but a Brazil. Good it's a really really good sieve because they are very versatile, and whatever you want to do with them, they will probably get an edge in it. So yeah, go Pedro. Go Pedro. I like it. Yeah, except for, like you said, the street carnivals, eh, they're meh to me. But yeah. um, 
everything else, very cool. Uh, thank you, Valter, for that. That I'm now maybe going to play them to be a, get a little bit more uh, uh, merchant stuff happening because you know i figured you would yeah that's a that's a good call out that's a good reminder for me i i appreciate that uh thank you everybody who joined us live this week and uh everyone who's downloading this episode and listening to it via their podcast player we appreciate all of your support for this uh awesome show and you guys keep us energized and coming back here to talk about civ uh always always fun to discuss the changes and such that have been happening and and discuss some new strategy tips so thank you again for everyone that participated in the august civcast challenge we will be back uh next week to announce the uh september version of the challenge so we're going to work on that this week and, and fine-tune some things so we'll have rules for you then uh in the interim you can uh keep checking back on the civcast subreddit so that is just a uh, civcast.reddit.com to share any thoughts you might have any any questions you may have for the show anything like that it's all there hang out chat with one another you guys are awesome community builders over there so we really really appreciate that uh, links to the show. You can find all of the stuff you need related to Civcast over at civcastpodcast.com. Uh, there's also a link to our Discord server, which we encourage you to join. You can type in uh, civcastpodcast.com forward slash Discord to get to that. You can find a link at the top of the page. There's also links on that page to get it through iTunes, the Android stuff. I don't even know what they call it these days, but the Android stuff. Uh, there's YouTube and Twitch links. Whatever you guys want, you can find it right over there. Let us see. Patreon. We have to give a huge shout out to all our awesome patrons that keep this show funded and moving along. You guys are great. We are at patreon.com forward slash civcast. We love all of you. Your donations go really, really far to make this stuff happen and uh, continue, you know, all our efforts of hosting the show and, and things like that. Uh, we have Valter's Strategy Session and Dan's Historical Extra coming up there to Patreon very soon. Those should be up there hopefully by the end of the month um, if, if we can get all our ducks in a row. So look forward to that. Uh, that should be by Thursday this week. What else? That's about it, except to say go check out our friends over at Non-Toxic Gaming. Uh, they're awesome supporters and keep uh, working to keep the communities online nice and friendly. So give them some love. We sure do. And that's going to do it for us this week, everybody. So, uh, you know, tell us your thoughts on things, and uh, we'll catch you next week. So until then, just one more turn. You're listening to CivCast on the Kyle Dempster Studios Network. For more shows like this, visit kyledempsterstudios.com.